Welcome to Libre Lounge, a podcast about free software, free culture, and all the other interesting aspects of user freedom. With Christopher Lemmer Weber and Serge Broklowski. All right, I'm Serge. Welcome to Libre Lounge. Chris is on vacation while we're recording this. If you've been following their social media, they've been working on game engines and things related to Sprightly. If you're not familiar with Sprightly, it's a distributed MUD based on ActivityPub that Chris is working on. We'll let Chris describe that project uh, when they get back. So I thought while Chris is on vacation that we would do something very different. Since Sprightly is a distributed MUD and MUDs usually have connections with fantasy role-playing games, I thought we would have a guest on to talk about tabletop fantasy role-playing games. So I brought in a friend of mine, Sean Hillman. Sean, say hi. Hey, how's everybody doing? I've known Sean about 15 years. He has run games for me as a GM. I know him as a game designer for a game called uh, Twilight River that I played. For people that uh, have played Dungeons & Dragons, he was one of the triad members of the Grand Duchy of, of Jeff, which is we'll get into. It's the mid-Atlantic region of the United States for Greyhawk in, I guess, the early 2000s. And let's see, what, what else? Is that, how else do I know you, Sean? Well, um, I mean, we played in Mark's game together. That's true. We have a we have a mutual friend that we've played in together. That's true. And we hung at a lot of the same conventions and same convention space for oh gosh, probably about five years, I guess. Yeah, so it was a it was a long time. And it was a, it was a long time ago. It makes me feel old thinking <laughs> about that. Yeah. Um. So I want to get back to to Grand Duchy of Jeff, and I think that's a nice sort of segue into some of the topics that we wanted to explore. So. You know, I want your input. So I'm going to explain my understanding of what happened, and then you can come in and, and say what's re- what really happened. Okay. So there was so for people who aren't familiar, there's a game called Dungeons and Dragons. It's been going on in various incarnations since the 70s. It's a fantasy tabletop role playing game, and there have been various incarnations of I guess what's what's called a living campaign, which is this worldwide game which everybody can participate no matter where they are they don't need to be connected to a particular person and in the early 2000s with the release of the third edition of Dungeons and Dragons Wizards of the Coast created kind of a spin-off organization that ran a worldwide campaign called Living Greyhawk and that they allowed each physical geographic region to be operated semi-independently. And Sean was one of the three leaders of the storyline and the rules for the Grand Duchy of Jeff, which was mapped roughly. So it was a region in the game, in the fantasy world, but it mapped roughly to the mid-Atlantic region of the United States. Is that about right? That's about right. Um, It was Maryland, Delaware, D.C., and and Virginia or the states involved, uh, or city as well, cities involved uh, in the Mid-Atlantic region. Um, the Living Greyhawk ran, I believe, they, they initiated it in 2000 or 2001, um, and it ended in 2008. And I was, in particular, I was a triad member from two, 2006 to 2008. 
uh, we were sort of the second uh, wave. Uh, second storyline is probably the best way to put it. There had been a five-year storyline, um, not unlike Babylon 5 or, or the original Star Trek. Uh, but uh, once that five years was up, some new tribe members came on, um, and uh, we ran a three-year story arc uh, to culminate the campaign. So for people who haven't played uh, Dungeons and Dragons before, I think I'm going to I'm going to give us a crack and see if this resonates with you uh, in terms of both the, the game and the history of the game. So for so the game, I think of it as if you are familiar with the fantasy genre of fiction. So I think most people have have at least heard of Lord of the Rings and those kind of settings. D&D Dungeons and Dragons allows you to to play a character in one of those type of settings and be the hero of that story. And the history of it is that it started off as an offshoot of what was essentially a miniatures game. So people playing with you know, war figurines and using them to simulate a battle, uh, which was traditionally a historical battle, kind of morphed into playing fantasy battles. And then that shifted into a narrative uh, focus. So instead of being focused on the battle, you are now focused on playing an individual character in that battle. And then my feeling is that over time, it was originally almost like playing a video game. Like you'd kind of jump into a character, it would have abilities, and if it died, you'd kind of roll a new one. But as, as time has progressed, people have become kind of attached to their characters and the story elements have become more of a focus than just the strategic battle elements. Would, would you say that's true? Right. The overarching life arc of a character has become more important than the in-camera, in-the-moment, tactical, or just even, even necessarily relational um, experiences of that character. And it's interesting that you brought up video games because... While it's, it's at this point in our history, we can look back on video games and say, oh, well, D&D is a lot like playing a video game. In fact, a lot of the role-playing games, the CRPGs, are heavily influenced by Dungeons & Dragons. Now, I'm not, like, I'm not an expert in Japanese RPGs, but I do know that D&D had a heavy influence in the creation of, of the Japanese RPGs. And someone can... can you know, someone else more knowledgeable can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's the case. Yeah, and, and, and what's interesting, too, is that the, if you look at the history of role-playing games and the history of computer games, they actually start around the same time. Right, yes. So it's not that computer games were kind of based entirely on D&D. The two kind of grew up with each other in a, in a parallel world where they kind of borrowed ideas from each other. And so you'd have... Um, ideas that might get introduced in one and then brought into the other uh, with with an, an interesting cross pollination. In fact, if you if our listeners want to play some of these type of games, if you go back to our uh, games episode, Chris mentioned a whole bunch of roguelikes. Um, we've we've also touched on and we're going to talk on in the future about about interactive fiction. That's a whole genre of its own. Yes. So I think we're going to really stick here and talk about. First about Dungeons and Dragons, but then about role-playing games, and then how this connects to free culture, because that, of course, is is an important part of our show. So, just kind of finishing up the loop around being Greyhawk. Um, traditionally, 
D and D is played with a group of people, usually friends, who kind of come together at a regular time, and your character is very much rooted with the game you play with your friends. I can't take my character, and um, that maybe I play with you, Chris, or blah, Sean. Uh, I'm, I'm having uh, Freudian slips here. That I play with you, Sean, and then go play it with you know Dave. Right, the, the, the character and everything is set to you. Um, and that was different with these living campaigns, um, and there were a number of them, uh, Living Arcanus, Living Greyhawk, Living City, where the idea was that these would be standardized across the whole world, essentially. Right, and uh, actually Living City was the second edition version of Living Greyhawk. It took place in the city of Raven's Bluff in Forgotten Realms. Because the, because the Forgotten Realms sur- supplanted Greyhawk as the primary setting for Dungeons and Dragons in Second Edition Dungeons and Dragons. So you, you brought up a whole bunch of topics here, even even without necessarily intending to. Right. I want to talk. I want to talk about each of them. Um, so let's let's start with this because you said Second Edition. Correct. And I think one of the things that's a little bit interesting uh, about D anD D for me is that. It's a game that has changed uh, over the years and has these multiple rule variants. If you look at the rule set of the first Dungeons & Dragons, it's super simple. And if you look at Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, which was kind of the next, one of the next iterations, it's also relatively simple and straightforward. And then Second Edition, which is what I played, was nothing, was, there was nothing simple about it. Uh, it was very complicated. Uh, very spread out, had a, had you know, lots of quote unquote knobs to fiddle with, and was was not actually that easy to play. And then we move on to third edition and three point five, which was a kind of a an update to to three and, and so on. So, I guess for people that aren't used to that idea of you know the rule set changing, can you talk about how you know the rules are different than the setting? Because you also brought up. You also brought up Forgotten Realms and Greyhawk. And for people that don't know, those two, what we would call settings, are in fact different. They're different fantasy worlds. They're not connected. Correct. Um, That's correct. So Greyhawk is what you might consider to be much more of a uh, sword and sorcery type world. Um, Close to the early 20th century writings, that, that sort of thing. Whereas the Forgotten Realms is much more epic fantasy, much more Tolkien-like, if people understand the difference between the two of them. Uh, as far as editions go, pretty early on it was established, and this is true in wargaming as well, miniature wargaming, that rules change over time. The original D&D sort of morphed into what they called D&D Basic by 1979, and then there was quote-unquote advanced D&D. And what the difference was... Advanced Dungeons and Dragons just had a lot more information in it. So, uh, a lot more races or species. I would just say it had a lot more knobs, right? Yes, so right. You could cust- you could, what you could really do is customize your character in different Correct. ways. So, maybe you didn't want to play a human. Maybe you wanted to play uh, an elf. And I, th- and I want to get back to the story, the story element in, in a right. bit. But what I think is interesting and important about these different um, races, and it's it's similar to the to the issues that we have in science fiction. Yes, right? mm-hmm. the the lens upon which which we look at the world can be very it can be very difficult to take on 
a lot of these social issues directly. It, it can become overwhelming. And fantasy, whether it's science fiction or, or you know, quote-unquote, pure fantasy, is a way for us to explore these issues in more depth. So maybe we don't have white people and brown people. Maybe we have humans and elves, right? And, that, and in that way, we can fictionalize and better uh, you know, handle, emotionally handle the complex, these complex topics. And so by allowing for more customization of your character, it actually facilitates creating more story. It's not just a matter of creating more rules for battles, but also creating a more nuanced situation that motivates your character and motivates the, the what we would call the non-player characters, the NPCs, right? So motivates the story itself to move in a particular direction to, to bring those characters, to bring the, the players a more rich story experience. Correct. That's correct. Um, and D&D originally, or AD&D especially, allowed players to not just play, um, and I'm going to briefly go through this because not everyone's cognizant. When we talk about hero in the modern sense, um, most people think good guy. And anti-hero is uh, a bad person who does good things. Um, but hero in the classical sense is anyone who sort of rises to the occasion for their particular side of things. So King, what's his face at Thermopylae? I can't remember his name. Uh, anyway, uh, the Spartan King at Thermopylae, Leonidas, is a hero. But then so is Xerxes. Xerxes is a hero for the Persians. And so AD&D allowed you to play evil characters, if that was allowed in, in the, the Dungeon Master's setting. So you could play all sorts of morally gray or morally not gray individuals. It's interesting, too, not to get us too far off tangent, the exploration of our own social issues via things like different races, Elves, dwarves, etc., half orcs, orcs, has over time come under scrutiny as well, because over time, because of the unfortunate zeitgeist of of D anD D at times, has been a much, very much a white colonial power fantasy, and that's changing. Right, because of the European aesthetic, the European aesthetic of the depictions Correct. of medieval life and the romanticization of that aesthetic has absolutely bled into, well, and Tolkien was kind of unapologetic about it. He said, well, I'm a European. This is the background I have. Um, he, he wasn't racist for the time, although probably by today's standards, uh, you know, it, it, gets, it, gets far more, it gets far more complex. That absolutely bled into both the aesthetic of the, of the D&D game and then also the players of that game, right? Because it was the it was the white suburban it was the middle class white suburban kids who predominantly played D&D and who we think of today as as the you know the players and you know if you were you know it was also an expensive hobby because um, you had to buy a bunch of things and and also to have the the free time to play that kind of game was um, was very connected with all these issues the the thing i wanted to touch upon was that you know this idea of, of who is a hero and is, is really connected with the Joseph Campbell idea of the hero's journey. And I think that's when you, you know, arising to, to action and, a, and, and having a change and whatever that change is. In fact, 
well, you know, when we see a, a story on TV and there's a change, a bad, you know, a sort of a sloppy story is one in which external forces change, but a good one is where the character goes through some kind of transformation. And I would say that that's, that's also the case with Dungeons and Dragons, where if you're, you know, if you've got a good storyline, it's not just the situation changes, it's also that your characters and the way that the players play those characters will also transform. Correct. And that was built into the game in a lot of ways. Dungeons and Dragons, for those who are not aware, is what they call a class level, uh, or class and level based. Um, so you take on a profession, fighter, thief, mage, and then you progress in level. And the levels show your progression. You know, at first level, you're, you know, you've just started out your journeyman, but by 20th level, which was a typical end, end spot, by 20th level, you're essentially almost as power you're as powerful as any mortal could be um and you're almost you're more powerful than certain demigods at that at that that point so that is so there was change over time built in as well as rules eventually for building your own strongholds for becoming a king or a, you know a, a powerful archmage that sort of thing all all designed to integrate story and rules together I want to touch on something you said, then I, then I want to rewind this back to some, some, other, some other topics. Okay. You know, you did touch on the idea of, of progression, right? And so level progression is, is kind of how it's done in, in D&D. And not all systems have level progression. And that, that can be interesting, too, from the perspective of, are you playing this just to get more powerful? Or are you playing this to, to, to tell a story and to be interesting? And there are advantages and disadvantages to both, and I think that's an interesting discussion maybe for another time. Absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about not necessarily the history of D&D in terms of, okay, well, this guy put out this edition in this year, but if you look at D&D, it's heavily influenced, as we talked about a little bit, by Tolkien, right? By Lord of the Rings, essentially. Right. And in fact, the, the, the Tolkien estate sued TSR, at the, you know, who was at the time the... the the rights holders for D and D, correct, and then they had to change some of the, the names of the of the races and change some of the depictions of those races based on uh, their similarity to to the Tolkien ideas. Correct, that's right. Um, even though Tolkien himself took so much of his inspiration from mythology. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, uh, specifically, you're talking about Hobbit, and I believe the tall elves, dwarf, and dwarf, and things like that. Hobbit. Uh, yeah, you know, originally they were called hobbits, but then they were they were termed halflings, which was a uh, compromise, I believe, between TSR and the Tolkien estate. Um, even though halfling is also mentioned in the book, it was you know, well, I guess it was generic enough that that it didn't that it, that it didn't ring the same alarm bell as exactly. the Tolkien's. But let's let's move on off the the detail a little bit and talk about. So we we talked a little bit about the aesthetic of of D anD D, and the aesthetic of D anD D is very much. Uh, a medieval aesthetic. It's kind of medieval life plus magic. Correct. Right? Correct. It's the medieval life that is in mythology rather than real life. Only about half of our listeners are American, but for people who've been to a Renaissance fair, right? Right. It's like, well, you know, this is all historically accurate, and you can get the your historically accurate fried ice cream and you know fairy wings and all that. And that's that's also, I would say, not just um, an aesthetic of of European 
ideas, but also kind of an American aesthetic yes. of the medieval life. It's a very American idea. Right. It's an Americanized version of almost specifically, not entirely, almost specifically Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-Norman medieval life. And, and I think, I hope at least some of the non-Americans will appreciate that because um, it's not just medieval Europe in life. Because the game does it. I mean, it touches on other cultures like Italy, you know, Italian culture and uh, Spanish and Portuguese culture. And Vikings are romanticized, but it really doesn't do a good job of, of talking about um, Norse culture from that time. And frankly, it doesn't really do a great job of talking about Welsh and Scottish and Irish cultures at that time. It really kind of is focused uh, on that that narrow part of England and the, t- the northern parts of France that uh, that we're most influenced by in our culture. Yeah, in the American in the American zeitgeist yes. of, of, of ideal. Absolutely. So let's break completely here and talk about this this idea of rules, right? So we've talked about studies. Let's talk about rules. I love so rules. What I so I I mentioned that D and D has gone through these iterations and. Bring this back to the fact that this is a free, you know, user freedom po- uh, podcast mm-hmm. and a free culture podcast. Uh, there was a big change in 3.0, whereas tradition, you know, before then, the, the rules were copyright, you know, TSR, or at some point became Wizards of the Coast, which is an arm of... of uh, Hasbro now. Hasbro, yeah, yeah, sorry. I couldn't think of the, the name. Yeah, so, so it's basically owned by Hasbro under the name Wizards of the Coast, uh, and they bought it from a small company called TSR. Correct. But at 3.0, they changed the rules to a new license, similar to a software license, called the Open Gaming License. Right. And that opened up so many possibilities for other people to add stories and also new rules on top of. And I know that that was something that you were very involved in, so maybe you can talk about that. Sure. Um, the OGL is important in a lot of ways um, and I think probably we don't necessarily understand all the uh, all we still don't understand all the intricacies of using the open gaming license but in essence they created third edition and then they said here is uh, a system rest uh, an SRD a system reference document anything that's in this SRD you can use to create your own games um, using this system um, and there were certain rules attached to it. Um, and it's changed over, as, as most things, it's changed over time, but we won't get into that at the moment. Um, so what you saw, uh, and at the same time that the RPG industry was entering two phases, one of them, uh, well, it had been in that phase for a little bit, but the indie, game, indie gaming movement was, on, was ongoing. Uh, the industry was in a down slump because whether we like it or not, as D&D goes, so does the RPG industry. When it's popular and making money, um, the rest of the industry is sort of picked up by that. When it's, uh, when it's not in a pop, when it's in a down phase, in a trough, uh, people don't play as many other RPGs. So the, the two are connected. And, but what, what really happened with the OGL, whether expected or not, um, there was a lot of content created by content creators. And there was a focus on setting and creating specific pieces of content without worrying about having to design a system to run them. There are many hundreds, maybe even thousands by now, of role-playing games. 
But so the OGL allowed a user like me to take a familiar system that is Dungeons and Dragons basic framework and turn it into uh, my own game, you know, Sean's World, which could be fantasy, could be science fiction, could be urban fantasy. And so that not only inspired a lot of creators and a lot of creations, it also uh, jumped the industry up for a short time. Um, so there was, there was a, some, a lot of money to be had, at least over a short period of time. And that's interesting from a, from a number of different perspectives. So as you say, you know, well, so what people may not know is that you could kind of always put out uh, setting. There were books on settings. Yes. So, you know, you could, you could say, well, okay, I'm going to create my own world. I could make, you know, my, essentially my own Greyhawk. But what you couldn't do was say, oh, and by the way, in my Greyhawk world, these are some new rules, unless you were licensed by the game company. Correct. Right. So you had to make an agreement that like, yes, I'm, you could make your own fictional world and you could say and you can set this world in D&D, but you couldn't you couldn't modify the, the D&D rules themselves. And, and with with the OGL, you could you could say, well, OK, well, th- this this just kind of fits nicely into this existing system. And without having to to go to Wizards of the Coast and get permission directly, as long as as long as your system was licensed in a compatible way to the OGL, you could just go ahead and do that. Correct. Which, which created a ton of new games that might have, as you said, been done in their own setting, their own, or sorry, their own rule set. But now they were all kind of fitting together into this roll D20 system. Correct. That was, that was kind of at the core of, of D&D and, and, um, and the OGL was kind of almost synonymous with, with this D20, which was, just a, a way of unifying a whole bunch of complicated rules into a much more streamlined, simple rule set. Right. It's D twenty was branding, very much branding. It's like, hey, this is a D twenty thing, and that, you know, that signals to the person, oh, hey, this must be compatible with, with D twenty, uh, or with the OGL. Um, and the interesting, two interesting things happen because uh, I don't know the date of the second one, in the uh, that really made, that really unleashed. The creativity, because prior to the OGL, you had to have you were either a guy, mostly a guy, not always, not always, um, but you were as a person in your basement, printing stuff out or going to Kinkos and printing stuff out and selling your game, sort of either by mail order or conventions. Um, so two things happened: one, the OGL comes out. Now, there were a lot of other systems not just D&D, that use the open gaming license or similar licensing. So that opened up uh, the wider for creative people, but also the, and I know not everybody loves Adobe, and I understand that, but the standardization of the PDF was then allowed people like me to sell electronic versions of a game without having to go through a printer. That was huge. That was huge. And the two of those together the open license and the PDF suddenly um, it's open. It's opened up a huge uh, chasm full of people who are, who are making their own content. That's interesting. Cause I want to talk about some of the other game systems that, that are out there. Some of the other freely licensed game systems. Right. Uh, and, and also, you know, how all this content gets created. So let's take a quick break. Okay. And then we'll come back and we'll talk about that. Sounds great. During these breaks, we like to highlight projects that are important and are overlooked. 
I want to use this break to highlight Freedom Defined. It's a website that describes the ideals of FreeWorks in a way that's neutral to whether it's related to hardware, software, or art. In particular, there's a great discussion there about the OGL and some of the more controversial terms of the license. So I welcome you to check it out. All right, and we're back with uh, Sean Hillman talking about role-playing games. And I think now we can talk a little bit about now that we've gotten through what is this stuff, we can talk about the free culture aspect. Yeah, so absolutely. Before, before, we, uh, before we left for a break, we were talking about how there was this um, license called the Open Gaming License and how it allowed uh, content creators to basically make free worlds and rule extensions on top of Dungeons & Dragons. And I think what's interesting here is that we made this distinction. We said, well, you could always, you could always have other settings, other you know, imaginary worlds, but you couldn't change the rules. And now with the OGL, you could do both the settings and the rules. Correct. And so at some point, uh, Wizards of the Coast retired Dungeons & Dragons and they made a new game, uh, Dungeons & Dragons 4. And around that time, a new, a new game kind of came about called Pathfinder, which was essentially Dungeons & Dragons 3.5 with a few tweaks and changes and a whole new setting. Can you talk about that a little? Sure, we colloquially it's known as three point seven five, or D and D three point seven five. So Pathfinder again, is, um, you know, very the three point five player base was very passionate, very passionate about their game, and we wanted um, three point seven five. We wanted a further refinement of the system that we had, because it had only been roughly seven years since third edition came out. And uh, second edition was around for 10 years. So nobody really thought it was time for a change. And, uh, but Wizards of the Coast had a different opinion, obviously. And fourth edition is very much uh, different in a lot of ways than it was a radical. Edition. It was a radical departure. It's a radical departure. Uh, it, it, it really is. Not just in terms of tweaking, you know, how much damage an arrow gives you. But a radical departure in play style and gaming, and I and people have done tons and tons of write-ups and podcasts and YouTube videos about this. So we don't need to get into into right. the details. But yep. we will say I can say that as a player, I was far less drawn to 4.0 from a story character perspective than I was to the 3.0 and 3.5, and even the systems before that, even 2.0. Right. Yeah. Agreed. Um, and so, the people at Paizo, um, had the, said, company that makes, the, the company that made Pathfinder. Yes, yes. the company that makes Pathfinder. They had been involved um, making Dragon magazines up to that point, I think, or Dungeon magazines to that point. Um, and the people at Paizo said, well, we're not interested in that. We have the OGL. We have the 3.5 SRD. We're going to make uh, Pathfinder. And in addition, my understanding was that, that Pathfinder, uh, sorry, D&D 4 was not freely licensed. It did not. It was not under the OGL. Correct. Four O. So, not. so they could not even have decided. So, if they had wanted to continue working in the same business model, they couldn't have done that without without working directly with Wizards of the Coast, Hasbro. Correct. And I think that that was done on purpose because um, the OGL had spawned 
that was Pandora's box or the genie. Genie was out of the bottle. Um, so you can't put the genie back in the bottle. What you can do is you can uh, say, okay, well, you can have your genie, but we have our own other genie over here in a bottle. And we're just going to, we'll play with this over here. To put it another way, what had happened was that there was so much new material, so many new games and so much stuff coming out for Dungeons and Dragons or for the D20 system that was licensed under the OGL that, that we can speculate that this was taking a chunk of market share from Wizards of the Coast, at least in their own minds, Correct. which inspired them, let's say, to create a new system that would not be freely licensed. So they kind of went back and said, you know what, this, this isn't working for us. And whereas Piazzo, and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right, decided Piso. to, Piazzo, okay, Piso. decided to say, you know what, actually, we're going to stick with the, the freely licensed content. We're going to build upon it, just like the license says we can. So they basically, in the, in the parlance of the free software community, they forked it. They said, we're going to continue doing this. And they forked it and they created their own setting in the same right. way that Wizards of the Coast had Forgotten Realms and had had Greyhawk. They said, well, we'll make our own setting. And, and I think you, you know the name of that setting. I don't recall it off the top of my uh, head. It is called Galarian. So, okay. So they had Galarian and they, and they, continued, to make, um, they continued to make books and materials and miniatures and supplements and tons and rule books and tons and tons of material for Pathfinder. In fact, they still do today make material for Pathfinder. Yes, yes, um, I do. And, and I think what's interesting here is that, as you say, you know, the genie was let out of the bottle, not just in terms of uh, Pathfinder, but also in terms of making the public aware that there were other freely licensed games. Correct, right. And right. I, the, the, the one that I know of uh, that Chris has mentioned to me is Fate, but you also, um, which is kind of a universal system. Very much, like yes. a Sort of like, a, there's a the proprietary version, I guess, would be GURPS. Um, and then Fate is sort of, is kind of like GURPS in, in, that, in that way. Uh, but even more generic than GURPS. Um, and, which is, uh, by the way, GURPS standing for the generic universal... Uh, role-playing uh, games, so, yeah. even yep. even more generic than the generic universal. Yes, very much so. Fate actually comes from Fudge, which is um, sort of its ancestor. But but yeah, the very and very much the the idea behind Fate and Fudge is to pull out all the unnecessary detail and allow players to more focus more. Uh, I dare use the word story, and we'll get into that at some point, but kind of focus on their characters as people and their actions more than their capabilities. So their motivation rather than, okay, well, if I choose this weapon, it's going to have this, this damage at this distance. They can say, well, actually, what is the, what is the motivation of my character? Why am I doing this? And, and I right. think that's, that's the... And, and look, there's there's yep. there's room for both, but but for oh, sure, certain types absolutely. of and certain times the people like one, and certain times people like another, um, and and a lot of people like myself like a mix of both, right? But but there's definitely uh, a need for 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 some story, at least in in my role playing. Correct, right? And so, um, fate and fudge and systems like that sort of get out of the way um, of uh, the role playing. They, they're they're not, you know, it's not as front and center 
as it is in Dungeons and Dragons, for instance. That makes sense. So the the other one you'd mentioned is, is a system I'd never heard of called Powered by the Apocalypse. And so I looked it up and it's a CC, so Creative Commons attribution only. So right. very freely licensed, even more freely licensed than OGL right. uh, is. Yep, absolutely. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about that system? Uh, well, Vincent Baker and the creator uh, was another name in, when it comes to indie RPGs. It's very much a big name in that. Um, and so Vincent created Apocalypse World, um, which uses the system. And it's very, very sort of in-your-face um, kind of kind of game. Um, but as you said, he allowed the Powered by the Apocalypse uh, engine to, uh, to, to be freely used on a Creative Commons. Um, and that spawned, has spawned a number of games out of that. Um, Dungeon World probably being the most famous uh, of those games. So, yeah, I mean, it wasn't so, so specifically, because there are also systems that are Creative Commons and they're not freely, they're not free, right? So right. they have, they have um, non-commercial distribution right. uh, restrictions, so you can't, you can't make any money, you can't even sell your own work, or they have non-derivatives. Uh, so you can't you can't build upon them, and in my mind, you know, non-derivatives and non-commercial are essentially the same as proprietary, um, for for the especially for the purposes of a gain system where the whole the whole idea is to be able to build upon it. Um, so so you know, for me, the idea of a, an attribution only gain system is very is very attractive, um, and, and as is uh, also OGL. Um, so, so that's, and I think that's interesting. I'm gonna, I think I wanna stick a little bit to, to the OGL stuff, mainly because it's what I know. I know Chris knows Fate uh, much better. Right. But I wanna talk a little bit about this explosion or what you call the Pandora's box or the genie. But I would just say, you know, an explosion of, of content, an explosion of people being creative and trying things. And, and you also, at least I saw an explosion of companies yes. jumping on this and using it to, to make money and to make uh, new stories and new worlds and new um, new ways for the, for players to you know to connect with the, this fantasy genre, whether it was you know high fantasy uh, medieval fantasy or other systems, it it really seemed to to just go in a million directions. Um, so maybe you can talk about that. Well, um, not just high fantasy, uh, or not just fantasy, but, um, you know, uh, not, or I should say cultural, there was also an important cultural explosion, although that has seemed to come later, where, oh, I don't have to make this about European fantasy. I can do Japanese or I can do Chinese or I can do African, which has been a big explosion of late, um, telling stories from different points of view, not just, uh, not just appropriated culture, but individuals from that culture now don't have uh, barrier is make barriers as they once did. So now we're getting completely different stories. Um, but there are a lot of success stories uh, that come out of the OGL. People who worked for, who may have been divi- designers for Dungeons and Dragons, then go on to create their own games. Money Cook is a great example of that. There's more than just an explosion of, of D&D content or D&D adjacent content. Um, the OGL it infects people's minds. Before, if you're creating it, I know for me specifically, you know, oh, I'm creating my system and I don't necessarily want anybody to play with my system because that's, you know, that's not how it's done. But then suddenly we think, well, wait a minute. People see that the system is available for free 
to use for their world. Suddenly, that's that breaks that mold of I have to hold on to it in order for it to be successful. And we found that actually, when you release when you release something into the wild, free for people to use, it actually you actually become much more wildly successful because people are uh, see what you've done, they take what you've done, and they want to go back to you and say, "Look what I've done." And and it, it creates this, it created this great culture, this 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 mix of this chaos of game design um, that you know, infected by the, the indie the indie movement, I think, um, has created a lot of success stories. Well, and when you think about the time it was, it, this was the late, very late 90s, early 2000s, and you were seeing freely licensed games uh, in the early, mid-90s. On, and I remember on Usenet, people were talking about some of these systems. Sure. But what OGL did was it kind of popularized this idea and brought it to the gaming masses, it, it kind of like how the open source movement brought, you know, free the free software ideas of licensing to the greater Correct. community, right. um, where we exactly. had had these ideas for a long time, but but they popularized it, and that that led to more accessibility to try new things out, and which is which is exactly what what you're what you're talking about, what you're seeing. Right. I want to kind of go back to D and D a little bit. Sure. And because I think it, there, there's, some, there's some big lessons to be learned. So first of all, as we said, when they put out fourth edition, um, their fourth edition of their, well, it wasn't quite their fourth edition of their rule set because there were these intermediate versions. But right. um, you know, when they put out that edition, they went back to the proprietary model. They tried to go proprietary after having been free. I think both because of the licensing and because the system was so bad, it didn't work out. Right. Um, you know, yes, gaming was, you know, yes, it, it might have made money, but, but the hardcore gamers kind of turned their back on D&D. And I think almost for the first time uh, in a big way, because yes, there were some people that didn't like third edition, but those people were a minority. Uh, most people saw third edition, I think, as a necessary um, streamlining of what had become a very complicated system. Whereas fourth edition just didn't it didn't feel it didn't have the the rule aesthetic and i don't know what else you'd call it it didn't have the rule aesthetic of a dungeons and dragons yep. and when they moved to fifth edition i actually think of fifth edition as being fourth edition it feels very much like you take pathfinder almost and then go okay well let's kind of clean that up even more well i, I wouldn't even necessarily characterize it as that because um pathfinder sort of has found its footing in um, more complication. Mm. Um, so fifth edition is related to Pathfinder in the sense that it's a, a reaction, I think, to Pathfinder because more complication. And with Pathfinder two, there's even more complication. And I'm not putting down complication in my games. I love complicated, but Pathfinder took took the path, not the pun intended, of more complication. And D and D fourth edition was. To a certain extent, it was like that. Um, I think that they thought they were making it less complicated, but it was definitely, I think, more complicated. And third edition and 3.5 had also become more overcomplicated. And that's why we wanted a new a 3.75. But And, and I think the, the idea of, of fifth edition, because what I wanted to get to was, yes, it was a simpler system, but it was also free again. It was now once again under the OGL. 
Yes. And, and I think that's kind of an, an interesting story from a free culture perspective of a company that went free, pulled away, and then said, okay, well, we're going we're gonna to go back. And people are, I think, a little bit skeptical of, of uh, what the future of free you know, OGL content is under Wizards of the Coast. But the beauty of a free license is that you don't really have to have confidence in the publisher, right? Right, right. And, and, I, and that's what Pathfinder showed was, you know, I think the idea was, uh, and the term we use is open washing, right? Which yeah. is, okay, well, it's free, but it's not really free. And we'll, one day we'll kind of, we'll give you a taste and then we'll pull it back. And what, what Wizards right. of the Coast learned was, oh, that actually doesn't work because oh. if, people, if people like what you've put out, and then you get rid of it, they'll just keep using it. And in fact, with, with the freely licensed content, now they can just build upon that. Correct. Yes. Right. So, so that was the beauty here. And, and you're, you're kind of seeing that again with 5th edition, a little bit slower. Um, uh, you do, but you are seeing uh, third parties come and, and start to make 5th edition content. Again, I, at least my experience is it's not quite the same renaissance as it was for 3 and 3.5, but, but I'm seeing it. Are, are you seeing that as well? Well, um, yes. Uh, and I think two reasons, real quick, uh, why that's the case um, is that the branding is different. So if I put out a 5E setting, uh, it's the 5E isn't the um, such a high-level, br- or such a, uh, you know, isn't a brand as much as D20 was. 5e is a very casual brand. It's like, uh, it's not like, oh, this is my favorite I- IPA. It's like, yeah, you know, it's an IPA. You know, that that's sort of different. Um, and the second thing is that um, Wizards of the Coast is open the DMs Guild, which allows people to create content with their content uh, and make money off of it. Now, people argue that you're not making a lot of money and Wizards of the Coast is making a lot of money off your work. Okay. That's true. Um, but the fact is that I can go and I have made a adventure for Forgotten Realms that no one said I, could, I couldn't I could make. Um, no one stopped me because within the parameters of the content creation, uh, I was able to use their their world, which I think is an interesting, uh, I think holds a lot of interesting um, for the future. I think that we're going to see how the DM Guild evolves when 6th edition gets here. Yeah, that will be interesting. So uh, let's talk a little bit about um, something you've touched upon a couple times here, which is that so we've, we've seen these explosions in content creation, but the, the general situation around the gaming industry has changed a lot in terms of uh, sale and distribution. And that has, also, that has also had an effect on, I would say, both a positive and negative effect on the way content is created and distributed. Correct. So back in the 70s, especially in the 80s and 90s, you, know, you had gaming stores, kind of like comic book shops. And sometimes they were both comic book shops and gaming stores right. where, <laughs> where people would, and I'm going to self-describe here, geeks and nerds would put out books and <laughs> they might even have a few tables where people could play games and it would be a communal space with a commercial element. Correct. Those stores have largely, not entirely, but have largely gone away. Yeah. Due to just, well, in proportion generally to uh, independent bookstores going away. Rent is expensive. 
It is the 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 kind of con you know the kind of material that these guys would carry. And I say guys could be women, but they were often um, owned by men. These gaming stores um, would be slow moving, and there'd be a lot of people who would go and and frankly not buy anything. <laughs> and so it was it you know it was it was a very hard it was a very hard business to yeah. to to maintain. And so you know online retailers have eaten their lunch because they don't need to keep you know they don't need to have pretty displays they don't need to they can deal with the long tail of material without having to use up valuable real estate um, in their store correct right um, and so most gaming stores are gone um, and we can we can talk i don't think we want to do that here about the rise of gaming cafes because i think that's a fascinating uh change but um, yep. Online digital distribution has has kind of exploded. Yes, it has. And Very much so. There's more money in D and D today, and I'm specifically mean Dungeons and Dragons. There's more money in Dungeons and Dragons today than there has even in the '80s, uh, when it was kind of at its cultural height. Correct. And that's amazing to me, right? So, so when I think about you know the height of D and D, I think about you know. Um, the 80s, I think about Stranger Things, you know, the, the TV show Stranger Things, and I think about right. kids, kids playing in their basement. But no, there's actually more people playing D&D today um, of, of more different age groups, than, and, and there's more sales of D&D material than there ever has been. Correct, um, yes. But it's not as culturally uh, visible um, as it was back then. And because the online uh, retailer has taken over, you don't see it in stores with the same prominence that you would have in a gaming store environment uh, in the past. Right. Um, ironically, of course, if we're you know, talking specifically about D&D, and I, I suspect other companies will follow, um, that's sort of reversing in the last year. Everything you said is, is more or less is how I see it as well. Um, but Target specifically, I know, Carries D and D stuff now. And Barnes and Nobles as well. Yes, bookstores have, have carried it for a while, and they, where they used to have huge sections, they're smaller sections now. Um, but yeah, the Target is now carrying the D and D stuff, which you know you used to be able to buy a Paris Handbook at Toys R Us back in the eighties and early nineties, um, but then they sort of stopped carrying that, and now that's sort of creeping back into the the. Uh, Consumer zeitgeist, and it's starting to get back into in front of consumers, which is interesting to me. That is interesting. So, um, before we before we wrap up, there's something really important, and I wanted to make sure that we had enough time to talk about it. Sure. So, in the first half of this episode, we talked about how the aesthetic of fantasy was tied into the aesthetic of Tolkien, and the aesthetic of Tolkien was very much the European idea of medieval life right and with the uh explosion of content with uh the ogl you're seeing people of different cultures explore those cultures in a fantasy realm or a fantasy setting in a way that's not uh so stereotypical or pure cultural appropriation so that it's Correct. it's actually a, a nuanced and interesting and also I would say also not fetishized in the same way that you that we often see uh, um, Eastern cultures fetishized in Western media. That's a perfect way to put it. Yep. And this ties very much into something that you've been doing and 
uh, I think deserves some attention, which is that you are putting out a, an e-zine uh, about diversity in, in role-playing game. Right. Um, earlier this year, Kickstarter, uh, uh, their games guy, decided they want to do uh, fanzines for February, a focus on fanzines in February, old school. So zines are like kind of mini magazines. Yeah. They were yeah, really exactly. popular in like the 70s. Yes. And the, like and, and the 80s. Doing it. Yeah. The Trek people, the, the role-playing people, the Star Wars people, everyone was doing their, you know, the, the horror people. That was big. You know, everyone was doing their own fanzine. Um, so a bunch of people decided to go ahead and, you know, take up on that. And I was like, well, what am I, what am I going to do? Because, you know, I, I, the people are going to do games. And I'm like, okay. But I always love Dragon Magazine. If you've never read Dragon Magazine, you're all interested in gaming culture and D&D culture. Uh, pick up some old issues. But the thing I loved about old, old OG Dragon Magazine is that it didn't just have D&D stuff. It had stuff from all over. Um, and it was stories. It was characters. It was art. Yeah, it was inspiration for people who were making fantasy role-playing games. Yes, it was, absolutely it was. And so um, I'd had a project that I'd had on the back burner for some time because I've been aware that even though people of color and women and non, you know, non-binary folks and, and people... So uh, underrepresented minorities. Underrepresented people in general uh, had been playing D&D for years. Um, the fact is that we really, they were still invisible. I mean, even the very popular Critical Role, which I highly recommend, it's entertaining. Uh, I think they do a great job. Um, it's still um, not as representative as... Um, of the entire gaming zeitgeist as it could be. Um, and I'm not criticizing Matt Mercer and his folks. Not at all. I, I think Matt Mercer's been great for um, inclusivity and diversity in D&D. Um, so, uh, but anyway, Dirge, Dirge, the diversity and role-playing game experiences, was my sort of idea that <clears throat> I had no idea what I was going to do with it, <laughs> honestly. It was like, I know I want to do a thing and I want to, you know, put it in front of people who don't look like me, who don't uh, love like me, who don't, um, you, know, you know, act like me. Um, and then when, so when this, with the fanzine, uh, long story short, with the fanzine thing came up, like, you know what, I'm going to do dirt scene and I'm going to open it up com- exclusively to people, create content creators from un- uh, underrepresented groups. Uh, the only, th- the only words of mine that are in there could be the editorial. Everything else is created by women. Uh, and some people of color and um, people who, you know, are non-binary. Uh, so it's really, it was really, I'm really passionate about it. I'm very happy it succeeded. Yeah, I mean, what's, what's, I think what, what we're seeing here, uh, and for listeners who, who might be new and will have not heard our really early episode about hacker culture, is that many people who feel excluded kind of go into fantasy and right. as an escape. And what we're seeing now is that people who may not even have been exposed to fantasy role-playing games are coming into it and finding uh, a means of telling their stories through these medium. Um, that's, that's very different actually than the, than the exclusion that many of us white suburban geeks experienced. And right. you know, the other one that I'm thinking about um, is Matt Baum's um, series where he um, has drag queens playing D&D and that's their podcast 
just yeah. drag queens playing D&D. &D. Right. And, That's fantastic. Um, you know, and what, what you're doing here, which is highlighting the, the work of people who are traditionally underrepresented in gaming, um, is, is also really important. Uh, I will say I wish it, I wish it was free culture. <laughs> I, wish, I wish the, the zine was um, freely licensed, but I still think that despite that, it's worth talking about and thinking about. Um, and I know that you're, that you're gonna put that out soon is that, and um, you're also simultaneously working on uh, another zine to help bring in the youth. Yes, um, and Arm Zine, uh, the Apprentice Role-Playing Manual, ties into to Durzine in the sense that I've stripped out all the cultural, I don't know if we can say, cross, I don't know if we can curse on the podcast. You can, you can. I, I, don't, I don't like, uh, Chris, Chris actually curses more than I do. Um, uh, I, I would prefer not, but you can if you need to. Uh, uh, I strip out all the, the nonsense, all the crap, okay. yeah, all the nonsense, um, and uh, because it's not necessary, um, and I'm stripping out uh, a lot of the unnecessary traditions, which are just gate. They're just it's just it's just a barrier to entry. Um, so kids or non-kids, adults will be able to sit down with Armzine, roll, you know, make some rolls, create characters, and they they're not bound by any kind of tradition. They can just sit down for two hours and have fun. And they can sit down two hours tomorrow and have different kinds of fun. And that's, that's, the, that's the goal of arms. That's, that's, that's really interesting. So um, since we're kind of, we're, we've been talking for a while and probably need to start wrapping up. Um, in terms, and, and I know you've listened to a few of our shows. Mm -hmm. um, is there anything that you want to touch on? Oh, actually there was. that You, you wanted to touch on some, some ideas of funding models that we could have. Or, or that that freely licensed content creators could have to keep themselves going, um, even when, even when their work is is uh, available. Right. Um, and real quick, uh, Armzine will be. I'm not sure which exactly license I'm going to use, but even though the magazine will cost you something to buy if you want it, the system itself that I'm going to create with Armzine will actually be free. Oh wow! We should so, we should talk so, about that <laughs> offline. I, I have I have some I have some opinions, and I I bet. Chris, uh, when they get back from vacation, will as well. Okay, great. Yeah, uh -huh. absolutely. Uh, but that will be free. People will be able to create any game they want with RMC, So, So I have some thoughts about uh, funding models for content creators. Sure. Um, and this comes out of the work that uh, I did when I was working for Question Copyright. And uh, Chris and I did a, a show on free culture, and we did a, a two-parter on funding of free software. And I think funding of free software and funding of free culture are distinct. Um, yeah. And I think the, the mod, the, not only the model's different, but the, the, the ideas behind them are different. Right. So the first thing I would say is that, although I don't love the platform, the, the specific platform, I think the, the model of ongoing donations to, to creators that you like is good. And... Um, yeah. You know, patrons, and I don't like the fact that Patreon has kind of stolen the idea of patrons, but I think the idea of patrons is a good one, right. and I think is a good model. And in fact, uh, and, and I know you used Kickstarter for both Dirge Scene and Arm Scene, and I would actually love to see uh, patr uh, uh, an ongoing funding model where I could just say, well, I like, like the work that you're doing. I'm just going to keep giving you, and I actually know that you have a Patreon, but... Um, you know, to kind of focus that, that money and that energy to um, those ongoing efforts rather than a one-off uh, effort. Sure. 
Yes, um, agreed. So that's the so that's the first one. Um, the second one is that there is nothing stopping you from um, putting out this stuff in um, digital or well, first of all, just in digital form. So you could say, well, download it and um, you know pay what you want. That's the kind of the humble bundle model: is pay what you want, right? And you know suggest a suggest a cost. And, you know, say, well, you know, I would really like it if you paid five dollars for this, right? And you don't have to require. In fact, you you could even say, well, this is going to cost you five dollars if you, if you download it from me. Um, I don't think that's a great model because it just kind of encourages people to to not. But right. you can certainly do that. Yeah. Um, you can also sell uh, physical copies, and I actually think that that's a, a worthwhile thing. Even though I'm you know I'm not a big I'm not a big fan of adding a lot of junk to the world. Um, I think that people do connect with physical materials in a way that they don't with digital materials. That's absolutely true. I totally agree with that. uh, You know, if you're going to put out something physical, though, it should be be beautiful. So it shouldn't just be like, oh, I've just, you know, I went to to, to, uh, my local copy shop and printed out a bunch of black and white copies, which I stapled together. If it's it's beautiful and glossy and if if people think it's going to last or look good on their shelf... They're going to pay for it. Sure, they will. Absolutely. Um, yep. And and I think they'll pay for other things like you know, T-shirts. Um, you know, talking about the Grand uh, Duchy of Jeff, I remember a um, a battle interactive where people were selling T-shirts for the battle interactive. Yes. And and it says I survived the the I forget the name of the battle now, but it was. Um, <coughs> I think I, it was Gorna. Was that? Was that it? I think it was Gorna. Okay. I want to say yes, it was the Battle of Gorna. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I didn't even participate in that battle, and I had a T-shirt because I right. thought it was that awesome. It is awesome. And so you could sell T-shirts. You can sell stuffed animals. Um, you can sell. You can sell material related. Um, and the, the other thing is, if you're afraid that somebody's going to take your work and let's say make their own book, first of all, you can say on your website. Hey, this is an unofficial copy. Please don't, please don't buy this. Right. Um, and then you can also use trademark, which is separate from copyright. So you can yes. trademark right. a symbol and say, well, this is how you know it's from me or licensed from me. Right. And please buy the ones that have my trademark. And people cannot legally put the, the, your trademark on their unofficial works. Now, right. that, me- that also means that they can make their own and they can have their own trademark, but your trademark is yours and no one can make, and they also can't make a s- trademark that looks similar because that's the whole idea of trademark. Yes, right, exactly. Um, yep. So I think that you know, those are the ways that you can, you can do this. And in fact, I think that um, this actually, you know, that, that for most people, they're not going to notice any difference. Meaning that they're not going to see like, oh, my sales are lower than they would have been. If anything, the fact that they're making their work available is going to excite their audience and encourage people to to give them money. I can agree with that to a certain degree because um, uh, we've talked about that. You know, the OTL free freely licensed to a system um, created a boon in the industry. It didn't crush crush the industry. It created a boon um, and a creative and financial boon. Um, the the what I always um, what I always fight against or what I always struggle with uh, is the idea that yes um, I want my stuff to be accessible to people um, so for me um, it's not as big a deal 
if I'm selling for three bucks versus five bucks. Um, I don't sell cheap because I, I, I'm not confident in my what I've made. I sell cheap because I want people to buy it and have, be accessible. At the same time, however, I feel, um, and nobody hate me, I've never been a union guy, um, but uh, I do feel a certain degree of um, camaraderie and responsibility to the other people in this industry. We're all fighting to get paid what we're worth, um, whether as freelancers or as content creators. And so it's always that, that sort of struggle between um, I'm worth this level. And we don't even have to, we don't even have to put it in terms of money. Cause I know that that makes some people uncomfortable, but I'm worth this much, um, uh, money or whatever, however you're going to evaluate it because of what I've done. Art, art is, I think, very important to human, uh, to human existence. Um, but kind of to, to get us back to what we were talking about, I think the, how those models that you were talking about work best is community and creating a strong community. If you create a strong community, um, if you have a hundred people buying your, buying your expense, buying a game for five bucks, you're only going to have five, 500 bucks. If you have 5,000 people buying a game for two bucks, you made $10,000. Um, and I think that's its volume of community. The bigger the community, the more successful will be. And I think that's how, we're going to be able to be successful as content creators by creating large communities. Well, uh, and I think there's, I think there's two other parts to this, which is that one of the things that has bugged me in the, as a free culture activist is that the proprietary world has learned our tricks, right? right? Learned how we connect with audience and kind of exploited that. And so they're doing yes. exactly what we do, but without all the freedom. So right. for me, I think the important part that we need to do is specifically and explicitly say, the freedom here is the feature, right? And right? If you look at if you look at software, people will say, and it's open source, right? And right. I don't love the term open source. I'm a free software guy, but you know that's the label, right? It's open right. source is that's a feature, and if you're a consumer, you might look for that as a reason to spend money on a company, right? So oh, I don't have to buy it, but I'm but it but it's open source, so I'm going to I'm going to going to get support from that company. And the problem I think that the free, that free culture has had, and this includes free gaming is that, that free culture activists and free culture creators have not been as open and as loud about, Hey, this is free culture. And I want you to know that this is a feature of my stuff and you should be looking for this. And if, and, and when you don't see it, you should be asking why, and then once that happens, we can we can do some really interesting things. So, for example, you know, you mentioned accessibility um, in terms of of economics, right? So, if something is if is uh, five dollars and say five dollars instead of ten, maybe at ten dollars, it's out of the hands of certain people, right? But exactly. You, but you could say, okay, well, how about if we have a sale in which uh, you pay twenty dollars? But by doing that, you are going to fund another person getting a copy of this for nothing. Sure. Uh, you see that actually uh, people on Twitch. No, I'm not, I'm not chilling for Twitch. Yeah, yeah but. Um, but uh, you have the, the option that people can uh, gift subscribers. Mm-hmm. And they do it all the time for channels. That's how a lot of these channels are growing. I'm finding out is that you have this person who has $100 that they can spend who will give out 20 subscriptions for free to mm-hmm. other people. Yeah. 
And I think that, that we're, we're, you know, going back to the Patreon model and the Twitch model, you know, what we're seeing are ongoing support is important for, for content creators. Yes. You know, is, yes, is yes. that they, they can't just always get it because of a particular thing. They need that ongoing support so that they can keep doing what they're doing. And we need to find funding models that, that work with that, which also might mean that, that, we, that you would have, uh, and, and we're not seeing this quite yet, but um, content creators banding together and saying, well, okay, well, we're a publisher, right? right. And uh, it's kind of like the, the CSA model for, uh, for, far, for farm stuff, right? So right. I, I, can, I can pay for a subscription and, and I get all the fruits and vegetables for that year, right? You, right. you, might, you <laughs> might see that with, with certain content creators where they're going to say, well, we'll send you whatever we make. Right, for this yeah. year, and you're going to pay for us to be fed while we're doing it. And you won't oh. know exactly what's going to come out of this, but, but whatever comes out, you'll get a copy of. So, so that, that's all possible. And, that, and that's still possible with free culture. And I, think it's, and I think free culture is part of this because, as you've said, it, this, is, this is part of the human experience is, um, is building on other people's work. Oh, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. There's uh, something I'm involved with, and I'm almost finished to design the game for this. Um, Adam, Adam Kitch, he goes by Adam R. Kitch on uh, uh, Twitter. Uh, but RPG Kitchen, essentially how RPG Kitchen works, and I'll do this real quick, um, is that they accept um, uh, games from designers, um, and they have tiers in their Patreon. And you sign up for a tier in your Patreon and like, if you sign up for three bucks, you get all the games that are at the $3 tier and half the money goes to feed people goes directly to hunger. Um, so there are things uh, that are, so that there are people playing around with models that are not just help keep them going, um, but are also helping other people as well. Okay. Well, I think uh, with that, we should probably wrap up. We've been talking for a while. Yeah. Um, so, for our uh, for our listeners, please connect with us. Uh, if you have email feedback, send it to podcast at libralounge dot org. Uh, you can follow us on the Fediverse at at libralounge at floss dot social. Uh, you can join our IRC channel at it's a hash libralounge on Freenode. Um, and uh, hopefully, Chris is having a good time on their vacation, and we'll be back soon with a more of our regular techie stuff, but I think this was a nice break, and I know we're going to do more stuff around gaming um, as Chris uh, evolves. So I hope you guys all stay tuned for that, and we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot, Sean. You're very welcome. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, everybody. Bye-bye. Libra Lounge is hosted by Christopher Lemmer Weber and Sergio Klasky. The show is produced and edited by Sergio Klasky. You can learn more and subscribe at LibraLounge.org. This podcast is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 4.0 International License. The intro music is Bossa Nova by Joth, released under the CC0 license. Today's outro music is Epic Theme Number no. 1 by Stephen O'Brien, and it's released under the Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 Unported License. 
Thanks for lounging with us.